Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern, with apologies for a small head cold. In this week's program, posting April 29, 2016, we consider motivations and implications of new violence between Azerbaijan and Nagorno-Karabakh, the ethnic Armenian region that broke away from it decades ago. Our guest is Anna Ohanian, chair of the Department of Political Science and International Studies at Stonehill College in Massachusetts. Her recent WPJ blog post on the building crisis and what can be done about it is Diplomacy with Dictators. We'll also point out top features in the New World Policy Journal spring issue, Black Lives Matter, everywhere. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. Well, love him or loathe him, it's undeniable that the presidency of Barack Obama has been set against the backdrop of a rapidly changing and, some would say, increasingly unstable world. America's role in it is changing, too, but what is that role? Mr. Obama, in a sweeping interview with Charlie Rose this week, outlined it and says as president, he has been somebody who is committed to keeping Americans safe, will go after anybody who's going after us, whether it's ISIL or Al-Qaeda or bin Laden or anybody else, uh, but also is using diplomacy, multilateral institutions, economic development strategies, human rights uh, as, as, as tools to continue to promote what I think is the best tradition of American foreign policy. But this does not mean the U.S. should be cavalier about sending in the troops, he says. We have to be judicious about how we use military power. We should not view ourselves as the muscle for any uh, particular side of a dispute if and when it does not directly relate to U.S. core interests, that rather it's important for us to use diplomacy and work with other countries and build coalitions. The president acknowledges that the lion's share of criticism over his foreign policy concerns his decision to stay out of Syria. The president has been severely criticized for telling the Assad regime not to cross a so-called red line on using chemical weapons and then doing nothing after the Syrian regime did just that. It's one area that Obama and the person most likely to succeed him in January Hillary Clinton disagree on. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. You know, it's not a matter of territory. It's a matter of self-determination. The people of Nagorno-Karabakh 25 years ago uh, voted for uh, independence. And uh, these people fully express its will and fully use its rightful self-determination. And now the current regime in Baku is trying to oppress these people, uh, trying to oppress not only by diplomatic means, but first of all by military means, which is very dangerous development. Karin Mirzoyan, foreign minister of the self-declared Nagorno-Karabakh Republic, spoke to CNN earlier this month after the worst outburst of violence since a 1994 ceasefire that followed the breakaway of that ethnic Armenian region from the post-Soviet state of Azerbaijan. A fragile new truce was secured through quick work by Moscow with assistance from Iran 
and a phone call between U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov, but not without a hundred dead, continuing small-scale violations, and a looming crisis for the region, the EU, and a wider world. It seems that sporadic cross-border shelling from Nagorno-Karabakh, as has gone on for years, suddenly provoked a massive counterattack by Azeri forces that seized key locations well past the long-established line of contact. But the underlying factors involved include vital oil and gas supplies and prices, a brisk Israeli arms trade in the region, long-standing Baku-Yerevan rivalry, and competing interests of Russia, Iran, Turkey, and the European Union. International watchdogs like the Crisis Group have called for more high-level, intensive involvement by major powers to augment the existing Minsk Group of the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, OSCE, chaired by the U.S., France, and Russia, to seek a peaceful solution. But Anna Ohanian, chair of the Department of Political Science and International Studies at Stonehill College in Massachusetts, stresses the value of a more diversified, bottom-up approach as well. Her recent post for the World Policy blog is headlined Diplomacy with Dictators, and we discussed it recently for this podcast. Anna Ohanian, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you very much, David. You suggest some powerful internal reasons, economic and political, for Azerbaijan's escalation of the long, tense confrontation with Nagorno-Karabakh. Talk about Azerbaijan's long-entrenched authoritarian president, Ilham Aliyev, uh, the problems facing him, and his other recent responses. Um, sure. Actually, the normally when looking at the region whether uh, from the perspective of policymakers diplomats involved governmental elites on both sides governmental officials on both sides um, the emphasis usually on is on external factors internal factors are as important if not more important particularly in the recent escalation of the violence I would like to um, just to clarify the sources of the conflict are Definitely very complex, uh, uh, the geopolitical interests of great powers, as you mentioned, energy politics, weapons trade, and importantly, the rise of illiberal order in much of Eurasia, and Turkey seems to be experiencing a democratic decline. So those are not making, definitely, the resolution of the conflict any easier. However, the last escalation of violence had some relatively, actually, simple explanations. And the outbreak of the violence, as noted and supported by most of the observers of the region, Thomas Duval in particular, has started from Azerbaijan. I think it is destructive to start thinking as who, to kind of go down the road as to who started it. But one important point is that uh, greater accountability does require to promote better transparency, keeping the leaders accountable in not introducing militarized violent methods of resolving the conflict. So in terms of the domestic factors in Azerbaijan, what I argued in the OPEB that this was really a diversionary war starting for, started from the Aliyev regime. Uh, the day before the outbreak of this violence and this massive showdown of military equipment on the, on the line of contact, both pre uh, the President Aliyev was meeting and um, uh, American leadership in the United States, uh, President of Armenia, 
Minister Sarkisian was also in Washington D.C. attending the European nuclear. I'm sorry, attending the uh, uh, nuclear summit. And um, the, immediately right after that, they started the escalation. In terms of the domestic factors in Azerbaijan, um, the, the the world, the decline of the world oil prices has really hurt the uh, Azerbaijan economy. There is tons of research on diversionary war. Again, the sources of the conflict are complex, but this latest escalation was relatively easy to explain. There were already protests in Azerbaijan as a result of the massive loss in uh, and the oil prices that pr pushed Azerbaijan to um, devalue, uh, to, to let their currency float. Um, uh, Azerbaijan was talking to World Bank and IMF in securing a loan in the amount of, I think, $4 billion. Right now, they're not moving forward because that would also entail opening up Azerbaijan economy. Privatization would definitely push forward. And what is also striking is that President Aliyev domestically is calling and asking for greater foreign direct investment uh, in order to cope with this uh, decline of oil prices, while at the same time is moving the military technology, drones and tanks uh, at the border into outside investors. Uh, this does not really send any uh, <laughs> signal that the country is serious about foreign direct investment. So you're saying that Aliyev in part was distracting a, a, a restive public from the economic problems of oil prices. There was even, I read, even a Panama Papers connection that was actually simultaneous with the Azari assault. That's right. It's actually the, the Panama Papers were leaked in the same day or the, maybe within a few hours when the violence broke out in the border. And the, the Panama Papers uh, unveiled that Aliyev regime, um, the Aliyev family, I should say, uh, has been in control of some gold mines. So there's this empire that, they, that Aliyev regime stashed away. And this is essentially loss of income from Azerbaijani people. And importantly, the direct impact of the uh, corruption and the uh, uh, abuse of domestic human rights. Many peace activists, human rights activists in Azerbaijan are behind bars. They can actually get in trouble for reaching out, for talking to our Armenian side uh, on finding solutions to the conflict. So the, 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 uh, the massive, uh, the, um, the connection is that when an economy is so corrupt, and it doesn't matter in which country, uh, an oligarchic that removes any factors of modernization, stakeholders, small and medium enterprises, do not have a space in the country, and it is that this economic sector that is most interested in resolving the conflict. So the loss of uh, the 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 increase in um, oligarchic economy, corruption, undermining human rights, democratic institutions. All of this simply wipes out any infrastructure for peaceful resolution of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. Um, I was in Armenia several years ago just listening in in a conversation of uh, a non-governmental organization, Eurasia Partnership Foundation. They were very worried uh, uh, about their uh, uh, colleagues 
in Azerbaijan um, because there was this massive crackdown on human rights groups and they were worried to continue their work in cross-border activities, on cro I'm sorry, um, cross-conflict public diplomacy projects because that would endanger the lives of Azerbaijani uh, uh, peace activists or just professionals that are trying to do some of this much-needed work. And I think my primary worry looking at the situation now, and it has been a pattern, a trend, Aliyev regime has made it impossible for Azerbaijani civil society to reach out across conflict lines to create projects, uh, to continue, to even meet, to engage in confidence-building measures. Without this infrastructure, it is not possible to have this, I think, the expectation to come up with these big bargains, these big deals and uh, peace agreements. Uh, they're not going to sustain. They're, they will not be able to be implemented. And the fact that Nagorno-Karabakh is not at a negotiation table, it just sets the process off to a very wrong and unsustainable start. Beyond the situation inside Azerbaijan, there are, as we've both agreed, larger forces and strategies involved. Some say uh, Russia is looking to reassert its influence over the region as a block to further Western inroads. What's your view on that? Russia, right now, um, actually, I'm working on a research project that explores precisely that question. I think Russia has a very long track record in creating regional divisions around its neighborhoods. To date, unfortunately, Russian strategy has been keep these regions divided. Any contacts between uh, within South Caucasus, any attempts, and there has been, of regional integration in South Caucasus has been eliminated in so even dating back to Soviet years. So looking at South Caucasus or in Ukraine um, or to a certain extent, in, even in the Balkans, <laughs> Balkan region where Russia is trying to make inroads, um, uh, Russia's strategy, in my view, is to maintain this, the centuries-old divide-and-rule strategy. So on the one hand, I do not think Russia short-term might be able to provide stability. However, I do not think that it is in Russia's interest, at least per perceived by the government, to produce a long-term resolution of the conflict. I would argue that it is in Russia's interest, long term to solve this conflict, to secure its borders, um, but at the same time, we should keep in mind that resolution of such conflict creates a push for democratization. Um, and a Russian government does get nervous having states in its neighborhoods that are uh, thinking or experimenting or trying to democratize their political systems. Having said that, I think pinning hopes, uh, we, should, we should be careful in not exaggerating the influence that Russia has in the region. I think the, this last outbreak of violence illustrated that Russia does not have full control of the situation. Moreover, I would also argue that hoping that these external powers, Russia in particular, um, will be able, or Minsk Group for that matter, will be able to be the player in solving the conflict that removes the uh, accountability of the governments on all sides. 
Um, there is the geopolitical theories are useful, but to an extent. I think Russia has an interest in maintaining some level of conflict and fracture in the region. Um, uh, but beyond that, to push for any deep, sustainable resolution of this conflict, it is it requires for the region to come together, as we have evidence from Central America that had 173 years of, uh, of dependence on, on its very powerful neighbor, United States. But in the 1990s, they were able to come together. And of course, the end of the Cold War helped. But the, the region itself was able to pull together, speak with one voice, um, end the conflict, and achieve greater level of autonomy. Looking at South Caucasus in particular, one story is that Russia is so powerful in getting what it wants, absolutely. But more interesting, equal interesting story, I would argue, is that why is it that the governments fall to Russia so easily? This points to their domestic weaknesses. The, the countries are kind of stuck in this chase for external patrons to sustain themselves domestically. Azerbaijan is chasing Turkey. And Armenia has been chasing uh, uh, Russia. And this is a very distractive dynamics right now that is not helping um, with the resolution of the conflict. Um, Russia, many are uh, thinking that Russia might use this as an opportunity to introduce peace peacekeepers. Uh, alternatives are just not there. Um, but what one clear alternative is for the three countries to come together, exert greater regional autonomy in order to be stronger in standing up against a country such as Russia or to Turkey. That does not mean Armenia and Turkey have to dilute their relationships with, Arme with uh, Russia and Turkey, but having greater regionally integrated forums will allow Azerbaijan to speak more effectively to Turkey and for Armenia to have alternatives relative to Russia. What are your thoughts about the interests and influence of Turkey, increasingly authoritarian and Islamic? Um, I'm very, very worried by the slide towards um, authoritarianism in Turkey. I'm in touch with um, many uh, Turkish analysts, Turkish scholars, and I'm very worried as to what's happening to Turkish academics inside the country. In respect to the specific situation, Turkey, uh, the decline, the 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 decline towards authoritarianism has uh, revived the Kurdish conflict. Um, one danger that this creates is that revived Kurdish conflict, irresponsible Turkish behavior in Nagorno-Karabakh conflict uh, creates a creates a very dangerous condition in linking the South Caucasus, eastern Turkey area to Middle East by forming a, uh, by forming a, a conflict cluster. Looking in the past, I think right now Turkey has been supporting Azerbaijan, which uh, it can do if, I mean, it's their prerogative to do it, but being very bellicose about it, 
in contrast to Turkey, interestingly, Russia has behaved a lot more um, uh, savvy by not declaring as to which side they are. Everyone thinks that Russia is supporting Armenia, and I'm not so sure. But Russia, and I'm actually citing an Azerbaijani analyst that I interviewed in Georgia several years ago. He was very correct to point out that Russia did not. Um, uh, doesn't, is, uh, Russia is not unveiling all of its cards. It's not signaling as to which way it will go. And it's that uncertainty that keeping everything uncertain that has become a negotiation strategy for Russia. Contrast this with Turkey. Um, Turkey has been essentially locked itself out of the region, all region, mainly by siding with Azerbaijan, the fact that the genocide, uh, not recognizing the genocide, uh, created further resentment in Armenia and worry that Armenians still view Turkey as a security threat, partly because it is not, it, it, it never repented. Now, if that puzzle was solved if Turkey grew up, Turkish government grew up, um, apologized for it, or even recognized it, that would unleash its foreign policy option, options, it would diversify Turkey's foreign policy options in becoming, uh, uh, right, in becoming a deal breaker, I mean, I, I'm sorry, in becoming a power that could promote regional cooperation uh, instruments. Turkey did propose uh, something, uh, some regional partnership in South Caucasus in which Turkey would be a part. Armenians, logically, it would make sense. Turkey is a neighboring country, has a stake in the stability in the region. But Armenians are very afraid of, are very, uh, they're not trusting the Tur Turkish government, and there's all kinds of resentment. Right now, I would argue that Turkey is not behaving as a responsible regional power by really, with bellicose statement com statements coming from Erdogan and really being a cheerleader for Azerbaijan reintroducing military options to South Caucasus. The past 20 years, the fragile, the ceasefire, on Nagorno-Karabakh conflict has been holding and on the, it has given an opening for Nagorno-Karabakh to rebuild itself, which is very important. In many accounts, Nagorno-Karabakh is a lot more democratic, institutions are strong and functioning, and uh, so, but reintroducing the military as an option, the mil militarizing the conflict further is in nobody's interest. It's not, it's definitely hurting Azerbaijani people, it's hurting Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh, and it's definitely hurting uh, Armenians in Armenia, because it pushes any investments out of the region, makes the countries vulnerable to external power place in the region. So the only group that is winning from this uh, situation are the political elites that are uh, mainly, not all, but mainly very much concerned about consolidating their power domestically. Well, I was very interested. For the long term, you call for diversification of the interlocutors involved and, quote, much deeper diplomacy that engages on the societal level instead of relying on those political elites. What different kinds of stakeholders in what new forums and activities do you have in mind? There is a lot of low-hanging fruit here. Um, I have done uh, field work in the region as well as in the Balkans. Uh, looking at the case of the Balkans, after the Dayton Accords, if you look, the political, so there was one kind of big bargain, the Dayton Accords ended the war, but 
the actual hard work of peace building did not start until after. Even with the political settlement, political elites did not want to have anything to do with one another. Communities were divided. So the European Union did play an important role in terms of supporting uh, regional institutions. And even this work has been very, very difficult, but we have so much to learn from the Western Balkans. In my scholarship, I have looked at closely at regional security, um, uh, regional organizations um, that have uh, cultivated stakeholders across conflict lines. This entails identifying which are the stakeholders that would benefit from bigger bargain, I'm sorry, from better um, cross-border engagement. Is it whether it is in education, whether it is in agriculture, better usage of water, the farmers, you name it. Um, that, uh, what, if you're looking at South Caucasus, South Caucasus looks like an institutional desert. Uh, having some sort of a regional organization attached probably to OSC Minsk group that will have to get into the societies in creating space for some of these stakeholders that benefit from peace, that benefit from uh, engagement at the level, at the regional level, that work needs to be done. Right now, there is no institutional support for such measures, very little funding going on. Looking at Armenia-Turkey relationships, uh, there has been a lot of EU support going in here. And there is a lot of uh, infrastructure here created between civil society groups, uh, Armenian and Turkish civil society groups. There's fascinating things that are happening, have been happening here. Um, there is no such infrastructure between Armenia and Azerbaijan, and that is a loss. I'm eager to talk to Azerbaijani scholars, and I have, I have actually met with them on, on occasion, but inviting them to Armenia would mean really endangering them, uh, endangering their safety. So identifying whether it's the farmers, it's educators, professors, journalists, there is a lot of need to promote such kinds of regional ties. Only such level of uh, support at the ground level will make big bargains at the geopolitical level possible. And so what are some specific steps uh, you see for the West, governments and private organizations, uh, including in the United States? Um, the, the, you know, one of the things that United States in particular could do to really push the political pressure on Azerbaijani government to, to open such front lines of engagement. Throughout over a year of fieldwork with Western diplomats, governmental officials in Armenia, Azer, I'm sorry, Georgia, um, the business sector, everything points to the uh, refusal of the uh, Azerbaijani regime to engage in any particular project until what they argue Nagorno-Karabakh conflict is resolved. It's totally lopsided. It's the contacts that need to be promoted in order for the conflict compromises to be possible. What the United States can do at the political level really put pressure on Azerbaijan, not necessarily to solve the conflict one way or to another. That should be done by the people. But there has to be an, there, there is a serious need by the international community and United States in particular on Azerbaijan to 
bring Azerbaijan to negotiating table and then starting to build infrastructure for regional projects, for regional governance institutions to emerge. Um, the sky is the limit. I mean, looking at the map, um, one of the analysts was, uh, has noted that Russia even promised Azerbaijan to build a railroad link from, uh, from Russia to, through Azerbaijan through Iran opening up trade routes, signing bilateral or trilateral free trade agreements. Um, trade has been routinely used uh, in various conflict regions uh, the, over, and we have many historical cases to that. I think United States, uh, and this might sound unrealistic by some, but again, if you look at the data, there's all kinds of precedents for this. United States can push for uh, some kinds of a regional organization to be formed that could promote, build these kinds of regional ties, uh, but also push for trade agreements, trade arrangements at the regional level, and again, the people uh, in three countries would be only beneficiary. Better usage of water resources, linking cities. Uh, sky is the limit here, again. And I think United States really need to be thinking creatively as to what can be done. Maybe a donor conference um, at some point uh, in order to fund uh, projects like this. You mentioned the Russians' interest or suggestions they might send peacekeepers, but you write about the need for uh, multinational peacekeepers and the and the really tiny number of them that are uh, on on site at the moment. Yes, I did. I did. Uh, Russians are eager to send in uh, peacekeepers, but none of the conflict parties are particularly excited about that. Uh, peacekeeping operation, multilateral peace uh, uh, operations, need to come hand in hand with also introducing greater measures and accountability measures, ceasefire monitors on the line of contact. In the short term, uh, such measures are critical uh, in order to prevent low, low kind of simmering levels of violence at the line of contact. There is no reason that soldiers should die, whether Azerbaijani, Armenian, it's just no difference to me. It's a loss of life. And in the age of technology, when you can use your app to identify nearest Starbucks, it just boggles my mind that a technology is not being introduced to monitor any movement um, of military technology, any the, the breakout of the, the, the firing across conflict lines. Buffer zones maybe need to be expanded. Um, but there is, there's some really low-hanging fruit here. There's low-hanging fruit here. And unfortunately, to date, Aliyev government has delayed such proposals, uh, has not moved in. OSCE Minsk Group did have such proposals. But OSCE Minsk Group has been keeping any, uh, quote-unquote, intruders out. More accountability needs to be introduced at the line of contact. If it comes with multilateral peace force, that's even better. Anna Ohanian, thank you. Thank you so much, David. Anna Ohanian is chair of the Department of Political Science and International Studies at Stonehill College in Massachusetts. A Fulbright scholar, her latest book is Network Regionalism as Conflict Management from Stanford University Press. Her recent post for the World Policy blog is headlined Diplomacy with Dictators. Featured in the new WPJ Spring issue, Black Lives Matter Everywhere, you'll find articles about black power in the French banlieues, race and revolution in Cuba, 
plus the unintended consequences of India's war on sex selection. And listen next week when our podcast will focus on resurgence of genocide in Darfur. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.